If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Psalm 51 tonight. Psalm 51. This is one of the most famous of all the Psalms, one of the most well-known, and for good reason. And as I mentioned a few moments ago, much like we considered Isaiah chapter 6, or at least not the whole chapter, but the opening verses, and we thought about the holy God seated on his throne and God's holiness as a very nice adjoining theme to help reinforce what we're considering as we study through the Ten Commandments. Well, likewise here in Psalm 51, as we think about God's law, as we think about his holiness, we find ourselves undone in front of, in the face of his holiness and purity. And so we flee to him for mercy, coming to him with confession and repentance, fleeing to Christ by faith. Well, Psalm 51 is perhaps the classic text, one of the classic texts on confession and repentance. So it dovetails very nicely with our study through the Ten Commandments. Let's just remind ourselves of the context of Psalm 51 before we read it. If you look up there at the superscription in your Bibles, that tiny print at the top of the psalm, it says, uh, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So in 2 Samuel chapter 11, you can read the narrative of David's affair with Bathsheba. Uriah the Hittite's wife. Bathsheba became pregnant by David, and David conspired to have Uriah murdered on the battlefield. 2 Samuel chapter 12 recounts when Nathan the prophet confronted David over his sin using a prophetic parable. Thou art the man, David. And David was driven to profound conviction of sin. And Psalm 51 is the prayer that David cries out as a result of that conviction. We're being taught here how to repent for ourselves from the Bible's chief example of repentance. There are a variety of different ways that we could divide the psalm. There's too much to cover in one sermon, I think. So as I say, I'd like to study it together tonight and again next Lord's Day evening. We'll study it along two lines, suggested by at least one of the commentators. The psalm very naturally divides in verses 1 through 9 as a nice midpoint, and then verses 10 through 19. So we'll study 1 to 9 tonight and 10 through 19 next time. Verses 1 through 9 largely show David crying out for pardon, for forgiveness. And then verses 10 through 19 show him crying out for God's help to change him, to transform him, to realign his desires and affections, a cry for purity. So that's how we'll look at it tonight and next time. So first, let's read God's holy word, and then we'll pray and ask for God's help as we study his holy word. I will read the whole of the psalm tonight, even though we will consider primarily the first nine verses. So this is God's holy word, dear friends. Take care how we hear it. To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant Mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. 
Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us. May he be pleased to write its eternal truth on all our hearts. Would you pray with me again, friends? Lord, this is your word, and we need it. Lord Jesus, you have said we shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. So, Lord God, help us now by the ministry of the Holy Spirit to read and mark and learn and inwardly comprehend all that we study and consider tonight. Grant us your Holy Spirit's ministry and his illumination. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Repentance, while often misunderstood, disregarded, or disdained, is at the heart of the Christian life and is actually life-giving and soul-nourishing. Repentance, while often misunderstood, often disregarded, often disdained, it is at the heart of the Christian life and it is actually life-giving and soul-nourishing. That's our overarching thesis for this sermon. Martin Luther opened the Reformation, more or less, by nailing the 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. The very first of his theses stated that our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The great John Murray, Professor John Murray of Westminster Theological Seminary, in his famous little book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, a number of you are studying through that right now in the pastor's class on Thursday mornings. John Murray tackled the question of which preceded which. And we thought about this a few months ago in our Golden Chain sermon series. Which came first, faith or repentance? In other words, after regeneration, after God had given the new birth to a man's heart and he was regenerated, born again, which was the next logical action in the order of salvation? Was it faith, trusting in Christ, or was it repentance? turning from sin. Well, Murray went so far as to argue that faith and repentance were so intertwined and so 
integral to the life of a Christian and to the new birth that he simply referred to it as faith repentance, with a hyphen, faith repentance. When Jesus came into Galilee preaching the kingdom of God, remember he said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached his great sermon to well over 3,000 people are cut to the heart. And they cry out, what must we do? Remember his reply? Repent and be baptized. Repentance is often misunderstood, or in some cases it's purposefully mischaracterized in our day as a kind of work by which you merit God's favor. It gets misunderstood as works righteousness. Or, worse yet, it is sometimes, in some circles, blasphemously referred to as legalism, that to forsake your sins and turn away from them and ask God for forgiveness as a kind of legalism. Friends, it is, it is none of those things. It is not a legalism. It is not a works righteousness. It is not a meritorious act on our part. Actually, as we shall see, the path of repentance is the path to home for sinners and prodigals and rebels. My friends, I know so many of your stories as I've gotten to know you over the last year and we've talked about how you came to faith where you were prior to Christ. I know some of the questions that the people in our congregation are asking. I know some of the things you think about because you have loved ones who have strayed. For those who have wandered far into the way of sin, how can you get back to the Father? For those who have indulged their lusts, for those who have committed deeds for which they feel utterly ashamed, for those who really do feel the weight of their sin and all of its deplorable ugliness, you find yourself asking, will God have anything to do with a vile sinner like me? Psalm 51 says, here's the road home for sinners of all kinds. Here's the path for the prodigal to once again find the Father's welcome. Three sections, three things for us to note in these opening nine verses tonight that King David models for us. Three things, the cry of David, the confession of David, and then the confidence of David. The cry, the confession, and then the confidence of David. So first, let's think about verses 1 and 2. First of all, the cry of David. Notice he is indeed crying to God for mercy. Have mercy on me, O God. Verse 1, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Twice David asks for God's mercy. The New American Standard translation puts it like this. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Do you notice the lack of excuses that David offers here? He doesn't say, I was a victim of forces beyond my control. There were extenuating circumstances that you must understand. It was that woman you gave me, Lord, Adam, in the garden. He's not acting here like a defense attorney. No, he's acting like a condemned man pleading for clemency. He knows what God's justice would require and entail, and it is not justice he asks for. He knows that if he were to ask for God's justice to be executed, it would be his undoing. He does not ask for what he deserves. He asks for mercy. Brothers and sisters, we must never, never approach 
God with a sense of demanding what we think we deserve, with a sense of entitlement. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that that attitude is common in the prevalent moralistic North American religious mentality, but it far too often creeps and finds its way into the crevices and nooks and crannies of our own hearts. However, subconsciously, we cannot presume upon God to show us love or favor as if it's been warranted by our performance or our religious goodness. We mustn't presume upon him as if he had to show mercy. He is entirely free to treat us as our sins deserve. Remember Romans 9 verse 15? I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. We must never assume or presume that God is required to do anything other than deal with us according to the demands of his perfect justice and his holy law. You know, our wanton sin and rebellion, it deserves hell. And and I have no hope, I have no collateral, I have no actions or goodness, I have no bargaining chips hiding in my back pocket with which I can negotiate. I have no hope for pardon save in his sovereign mercy as I stand naked and exposed as a sinner before his purity and holiness. And this is David's stance here, do you see? The beginning of Psalm 51. No hope, no hope at all except save in his sovereign, God's sovereign mercy. Have mercy, O Lord. I've got nothing. I've got no leverage on you at all. Have mercy, I beg you, O Lord. But at the same time, did you see how he makes his cry for mercy in verse 1? He makes a case, but not in the way that we tend to make cases, in invoking our rightful claim to something. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. So on the one hand, there are no excuses for sin. All the evidence condemns me before the royal bar of heaven. And yet David says, there's nothing in myself, but there is something that I can plead before God. I can't argue from any of my deeds or my performance. Those those will send me straight to condemnation. But you know what I can do? I can plead according to the character of God himself. I can plead from the character of God himself. Here's the only hope we have. Here's the only hope for wretched sinners, for rebellious, scornful prodigals, hating our God and loving our sin. We who indulge our lust, who spurn his goodness, foul and filthy and vile as sinners we are before a God of ineffable holiness, a God who is of purer eyes than to behold evil. Here it is. This must be our prayer. This is your character, O God. This is what you are like. You have said, Lord God Almighty, you have said in your word that you are the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I'm not, I'm not importing up into you characteristics that you yourself did not say that you have. You have disclosed to me that you are a God of mercy, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So upon your nature and your character and upon your attributes, therefore, O oh God, I come to you. All of my hope for any mercy rests in your character. I've got none in myself. My only hope is this. You are a God of mercy, and mercy is what I need. Friends, do you pray like that? 
do so. And tell all kinds of people, tell all kinds of lost sinners that there is a God of mercy to whom they too can cry. Plead with God for his mercy. Plead according to his character. Plead his attributes back to him. Plead his promises back to him. Plead to our God accordingly because he is a God with a character, a God who delights to give mercy. So that's the first thing, the cry of David, the cry of David. But then secondly, we see there that there's the confession of David, the confession of David. Look with me at verses 3 through 6. Here is the essence of true repentance. He acknowledges and admits and confesses and owns his sin as it really is. My sin is ever before me, he says in verse 3. He feels sin's bite, if you will. He feels the sting, the, the burn of it. He can try to distract his mind from its reality and drown out its condemning voice. But when it's all over, when the party's ended, when the friends have gone home and all the distracting activity and the entertainment are done for the night, the damning reality still throbs against him. My sin is ever before me. You know how we love to, we live in the age of euphemism, don't we? It's not adultery, it's an affair. It's not a lie or deception, it's a fib. It's not embezzlement or thievery, it's a fudging of the numbers, a mistake. We love to live in the age of, we live in the age of euphemism and we love to employ the euphemism. David is doing no such thing here. He does not try to gloss over his sin. He does not try to excuse it away, chip away at the thorniness of it. No, there it is, staring him straight in the face. My sin is ever before me. Brothers and sisters, this is the fundamental step if we are ever to deal with our sin and to be reconciled to God. Our Lord Jesus said, The healthy have no need of a physician, but only the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Sinners. The truth is, the law of God must thunder against us, and we must sense its terror, and we must be awakened to the reality of our great peril. As one man said, you must feel your need of a Savior, or you'll never seek to be saved. The good news makes no sense apart from the bad news. Someone comes to me and says, Sean, I've just paid off that half a million dollar debt that you owed. Wasn't aware I had a half million dollar debt. Forgive me if I'm not terribly elated. I don't get what you're getting at, friend. So it is with the good news and bad news. The news of the good news of Jesus Christ of mercy and pardon, full and free from the Savior's hand, everlasting life, liberty from the penalty and the power of sin now and forever. I didn't know I had a problem. The good news only makes sense when we rightly understand the bad news. The law must thunder against us for us to feel the weight of our plight. But David doesn't stop there. You'll notice he does confess his sin. My sin is ever before me, verse 3. But then he goes further. He gets specific. Psalm 51 is incredibly useful for all kinds of reasons, not least of which is that it provides us with a profoundly insightful theology of sin, what the theologians like to call homartiology. In other words, Psalm 51 helps us understand better and more fully what sin is and why it is such a heinous thing. One commentator suggests at least 
three angles to sin that this psalm provides for us, three lights, three lights to shine upon it in which to understand our sin. First, in verse 3, David understands sin as transgression. Transgression, the word means to stray across the boundary. It, It is to invade forbidden territory. He has crossed the line, as we would say. On December 7th, 1941, we Americans know that war was made its way onto our homeland. Up till then, it had been more or less a distant conflict fought in Eastern Europe or on the far east of the Pacific realm. But now, American sovereignty had been violated and American lives perished. War had come to us. Our territory had been transgressed and the full wrath and fury of the American military complex was soon to be unleashed on the Axis powers. Being here in Oak Ridge and knowing the history of our city and its role in World War II, we know a little bit about that. Well, likewise, God has established his moral law. Any breach of his law, any crossing of his border, any invasion of that forbidden territory into sin will initiate hostilities. His fury against transgression, and that is David's condition. He is at war He is at enmity with God in his sin. He has transgressed the holy law of God. He has crossed the line. As one man puts it, sin for David is not a matter of letting himself down or failing to meet some personal standard. Neither is it merely a breach of social convention or cultural expectation. Remember how our shorter catechism puts it, what is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Any lack of conformity unto my failing to measure up to the law's standards or my violation of what it states. Have you considered, brothers and sisters, if our prayers for mercy, if they're only motivated by our embarrassment of getting caught or our frustration of having failed ourselves in our own internal personal standard, if our guilt is a result only of the shame that other people have heaped upon us because we got caught, while we may be sorry because of the embarrassment, we have not yet begun to repent. We must come to God seeing sin as it really is. It is not fundamentally a wrong committed against myself, society, or the standards of others. It is fundamentally a wrong that is committed, a cosmic heinous wrong against the righteous law of a holy God. And by this standard, every single one of us stands in need of mercy. So that's one aspect, one angle, if you like, of sin that David helps us understand. It's transgression. The second aspect of sin that we need to notice, and very closely connected to the first, is that David acknowledges that sin is sin because it is essentially Godward in its orientation. Verse 4. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Sin is a flagrant violation of God's law. We thought about that just a moment ago. But it is also a flagrant violation against God himself. Now, it's not that David is ignoring the sin he committed against Bathsheba or Uriah, her husband. He has sinned against them. Sin is fundamentally a violation of God's law, but it's not to say that it isn't also other things, violation of civil laws and so forth, sinning against other people. David understands that. He knows that he has sinned against God and others. 
but rather David knows that even in his adultery and his murder, they take on the character of sin, not simply because of their horizontal dimension, because of their impact upon these other people, the wrong that they have inflicted on others, but these actions are sinful because they offend against the character of an infinitely holy God. One commentator put it like this, all sin, whether it's an offense against a neighbor or a failure of spiritual obligations toward God, is sin because God is good and we are not. God is holy and we are not. And so David says here, against you, you alone, have I sinned. Close quote. You are justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Do you see, David agrees with God. God renders a verdict against David through Nathan the prophet. David agrees with him. You're justified, Lord God. You've got it right. Your judgment is entirely correct. Your pronouncement upon me is entirely accurate. You've got it. As we said a moment ago, some of us repent simply because we got caught. Yeah? Boys and girls, when your moms and dads catch you in the midst of something or they find out that you did something you weren't supposed to and you say you're sorry, let's be honest, sometimes you just say sorry because they're there staring at you. Not always sorry just because you did it and you know it was wrong. You're sorry that you got found out. I think we adults are like that too. We're overcome by emotions. Perhaps we're moved to tears. But if that is where we stop, it is insufficient. I feel shame. I feel embarrassed. Please just go away and stop looking at me now. I don't like this feeling. Until we come to see sin as sin and see it as an offense against God, until sin grieves us. Think of it like this. Think of it like this. Even if there was no hell to fear because of sin, even if there was no heaven to gain because of sin, but simply because sin grieves God, that alone is why we should hate it. Even if there was no fear of punishment, even if there was no fear of an eternal fate that awaits us because of our sin, on the basis of God and his holiness and his character alone, that should be reason enough for us to hate my sin, to hate our sin and for me to hate my sin. Until that is our understanding, until that is the drive behind our remorse, I dare say that we have not rightly repented. So sin is a transgression against God's law. Sin is a a violation against God's character itself. But there's also a third aspect that one commentator pointed out. It's the source of sin. The source of sin. David confesses sin's source. It springs, verse 5, from his own depraved nature. Did you see that? Verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We are sinners from birth. We are sinners in our first father, Adam. Not just predisposed to commit sins, but guilty right along with the guilt of our first father's sin. Something by way of illustration. Some of you know the household dog in the Morris household, Max the Beagle. Let's pretend that my beagle, my hound dog, was a real dog for a moment and not just the breathing pillow that he is. Let's pretend he was a a real, actual hound dog. Hound dogs are bred to chase rabbits, yes? He chases rabbits. Is he a hound dog because he chases rabbits? Is that tendency, is that proclivity to chase down squirrels and rabbits what makes him a hound dog? And if that's the case, if so, if I chase rabbits when I walk through the woods, does that make me a hound dog? No, of course not. Rather, 
because of the way he is bred, it is internal, it is instinctual, it is his genetic predisposition, his constitution as a creature to chase rabbits. Because he is a dog, he chases. Are we sinners because we do sins? Because we commit sins? Or, rather, do we commit sins because we are sinners? because it is our habitual nature, because Adam, our father, sinned in the garden and humanity was plunged evermore into the curse of sin following him. Is it the constitution of our DNA and our behavioral wiring to be predisposed to sin and therefore we chase after sin and we do it gladly? It is the latter. And David's point is that we need saving because of who we are, not just because of what we do. One pastor put it like this, David's point is that there was no time in our lives when this wasn't true of us, when every man and woman and boy and girl ever born didn't stand in desperate, desperate, urgent need of Jesus. Close quote. And so Psalm 51 tells us that we need more than just a New Year's resolution. We need more than just a reboot or a fresh start, a, a turning over of a new leaf. That's not repentance. We don't need Jesus' forgiveness to help us deal with our guilty feelings merely. We need him to deal with the actual guilt that is ours before the holy judgment seat. The, the sin that not just is a, attached to our bad deeds, but it's woven into our very nature as fallen in Adam mortals. We don't need simply a reformation of our actions and a reformation of our mindset. We are polluted and fallen inside and out by nature to the very core of our heart and soul and being. Our nature is wrong. It's a new nature that I need. Not enough fixing it up will do. Not enough improvement or tweaking it will do. I need a whole new nature. No wonder David cries for mercy. He's crying for mercy. Where can it be found? Is there any hope for wretched David? Is there any hope for wretched me? You better believe there is. So the cry of David, the confession of David, and then finally the confidence of David. The confidence of David. Look with me at verses 7, 8, and 9. Purge me with hyssop, he says, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. He wants God to hide his face from his sin. And where will this reality come from? It must come as a result of atoning blood. This is the grand theme of the book of Leviticus as it lays out all these detailed instructions regarding sacrifices and offerings and specific detailed prescriptions for priestly sacrificial offerings in order that sinful people maintain, may maintain a ritually clean standing before the presence of God. And of course Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, the greatest commentary that has ever been written on the book of Leviticus. Remember what it says in Hebrews 9 verse 22? Without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin. So King David knows his Hebrew Bible, and he remembers the sacrifices of atonement in the law of Moses. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Here's what one of the commentators said. Hyssop was a plant 
that would be bundled and made into a brush used to sprinkle the blood of the sacrificial animal on the people or the things to be consecrated and ritually cleansed according to the law of Moses. It was a hyssop brush that the Israelites used to dab the blood on their doorposts and lintels when the angel of death passed through Egypt at Passover. Later on, the priests would use it to cleanse those who had been healed of an infectious disease. Leviticus 14, for example. David's point is this. Because of the blood of the sacrificial victim, O God, make me clean. Close quote. Oh, my friends, how different is the way that the world shows mercy versus how our God has made an avenue for mercy. We get a speeding ticket. We beg them that they just let us off with a warning. It's just the first time offense. We'll let it go this time. Let me off the hook. I've been a model citizen. I pay all my taxes. I keep my lawn very tidy. Would you make an exception just this one time? The world, as we said earlier, it winks at wrongs. It sometimes sweeps it under the rug. Don't worry about that. But don't I owe a ton of money? Well, I guess it just got lost in the paperwork. Don't worry about it. God does not simply excuse sin, nor can he. It would be a violation of his holy character. Nor, nor, by the way, is David asking for such a thing. David is not asking for God to wink at sin or to look the other way and pretend that it never happened. He's asking for God to forgive him because a substitute victim has already paid for his sin. A sacrifice has already been slaughtered on the altar in the temple of Israel. Instead of David, the sins have been laid on that scapegoat at the high day of atonement, and that scapegoat has been driven outside the camp. A sacrifice, a scapegoat, which points to great David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would one day come, that fullness of time, and to be the fullness of that sacrifice, the full sacrifice to which the bloody ceremonies of the temple only pointed and only imitated in type and in shadow. See, friends, this is what we must do. We must find our mercy and we must stake our hope on the atoning blood of the sacrificial lamb. What David is doing in type and shadow, we do in the fullness of the new covenant brightness and reality. He looked to the sacrifices and the offerings in the temple and said, Oh God, because of this sacrifice and this atonement for sin, God, please have mercy upon me. We look to Calvary. Oh God, because of this sacrifice, because of this offering that pleased you, oh God, on that account, have mercy. On account of the atoning blood of the sacrificial lamb, we must look to Jesus Christ. We must simply cry, Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's it. That's our only plea. Jesus died that we might live. That's our only plea. So, friends, have we repented? Do we repent? Do you face yourself and agree with God and see your sin for the foul, putrid, vile transgression against an ineffably holy God that it is? Do we think of our sin as a mere oops? Or do we see it in all of its ugliness and agree that there is no hope to deal with it apart from one thing? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So let us confess and believe it. Let's find refuge at the foot of Calvary. Believe on Jesus Christ so that this song might forever be on our lips. 
He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Praise God for Psalm 51 tonight. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask that you would show us the utter horror of our sin for what it is and that you would drive us to an end of ourselves so that we might cling to and find eternal refuge in the one who is our beautiful Savior, the Lord Jesus. And that by your grace and by your resurrection power and by the ministry of your Spirit, you would grant to us the life-giving discipline and practice and grace of repentance that we would ever turn from sin, turn from sin and turn toward you and to turn to the welcome that you give to sinners in Christ. Hear our prayer and seal the precious promises and truths of your holy word to our hearts this night and forevermore. Amen.